Welcome to the hotly anticipated episode 30 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey and I'm none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse. Well, today we are interviewing two saints, and I know they're saints because we've just had the most unbelievable faffing about with the tech, and they've remained completely unfazed by it all but we're delighted to have Gilbert and George on the podcast they don't need an introduction but very briefly they've been creating art together since 1967 when they met at St Martin's School of Art they display themselves as living sculptures figures in their own art mainly in their signature suits but sometimes naked they've exhibited the huge claim all over the world and next month their latest exhibition the new normal pictures opens at white cube in mason's yard in mayfair i've had a virtual tour but i'm very jealous because charlotte is actually with them in the flesh at the gallery I am, Ed, and I can confirm that the exhibition is even more sensational in real life. It comprises 26 pictures from a series of over 85, I think 85, that Gilbert and George have been working on for a year, this year, I think. They'll tell us all about it. And quite simply, it's a gloriously brutal depiction of London. But rather than me trying to talk about it, I'm going to hand over to them. Hello, Gilbert and George. Good morning, good morning. Good morning, good morning. Now, there's so much to talk about, but first, can we talk about these pictures? You said your subject matter is the world, it's pain, and certainly these pictures make our city look pretty bleak and dark, even though they're absolutely bursting with day glow colour. So give our listeners a bit of a sense of what they're going to be seeing. Well, we're very proud. We don't believe it's a bleak picture of our world. In fact, we believe that we're all spoilt brats, Never do people have so, so much privilege and more people travel to more countries. We're more privileged and more able than ever before. It's a great triumph, the West, Western civilization. I mean, we started to take images for these pictures one and a half years ago. And instead of, start, uh, instead of looking up in the sky, we started to look down on the floor. And so we started to see a totally new world where we walked every day because our... Ju- we have this journey that we are going to, towards the end. And it's very exciting for us to see what is actually going on on Earth. Like what sort of things? Balloons, needles, drugs, whatever you want is there. Because we are not satisfied with what is here. We want something else all the time as human beings. So we want to be drugged up. We want to be sky high. The sun is not good enough. That's what we see now on Earth today. Tell us about the, the, the colour. We had to discover colour. We, we were not like normal artists or ch- children artists or amateur artists who start with a box of paints. We started as sculptors, so we had to find... It took us four years to find red and then another year to find yellow. And so colour for us is something very special and not... We don't come from a picture-making background. The colours are not there to, for people to enjoy. They're there to help carry the message and the thoughts and feelings and beliefs to the viewer. I mean, we all started out as black and white first. Then to make it more like a campaigning art, we used to have red on top of it. And after it became more a kind of emotional art, us or how we feel inside ourselves, not what we see outside, all what we feel inside. The colors come from expressing our inside. Every single one of these pictures, like all of our art, every, everyone is a visual love letter from us to the viewer. I know one of the things that's always intrigued Ed and me is why your paintings are divided up into squares. The same as houses are built of many, many bricks rather than one. 
And it's also uh-huh. very practical. It means they can come to pieces, go into boxes and tra- travel around the world. And that's why framing is very good. And you can take it down and put it in a box and transport them anywhere. And they can be as big as a house if you want to. So it's extraordinary modern way of sending pictures towards the, uh, all over the world. And it's a kind of discipline. We can't compose the picture entirely as we want because of the grids. And, and we rather like that. And it is our signature in some way. People can realise it's one of our pictures even a mile away without seeing the subject. Even in a matchbox, they can see immediately, ah, that's a G&G. What are they telling us today? (laughs) Well, one of the things you were talking about earlier while we were faffing around with the technology was that you think you find all cities are the same. You were saying that, that we marvel at the Western world. When we left college, St Martin's, in 67, and rather than try to get a grant from the Gulbenkian Foundation, which wouldn't be allowed for two people, or get a part-time teaching job, not allowed for two people, try to get a subsidised studio, not allowed for two people, we wandered the streets of London and we marvelled at the great railway stations, King's Cross, Victoria, St Pancras, and all of the tube stations with all their extraordinary... and the shops and the offices and the police stations and the nightclubs and the sauna clubs in the palaces, in the prisons, and, and the courts. We're just amazed and totally impressed by, by the modern world. And that, that exists wherever you can go to Ontario today or Sydney or Melbourne. It is that same, we are safe and free. And safe and free is something that came about because of culture. We prefer the conservative way because the conservative tends to be for the individual and the Labour Party tends towards collectivism. So generally speaking, for an artist, we know both parties are very close, but we think the Conservative way is better for us as artists. I know that's a filthy, dirty word to say in the art world, but that's our view. Well, I I think that's my way into this podcast. I'm a Conservative, and in fact, the only other Conservative I know in the art world, apart from you two, is Tracy Emin, although she may no longer be a Conservative. How have you found it standing up for the Conservatives for the last 50 years in the world of the art, which is in my view, relentlessly left-wing? Well, I think everyone that administrates things in the art world, gallery owners and museum owners, all say that the Conservative Party is better for the arts, but they only say it behind closed doors, which doesn't help. So we we say it openly, it's much better. I've never voted in my entire life, so I wouldn't know what to say about it, but George is a Conservative. Gilbert never voted, and I tend to vote for the party that I know is going to win, and so far I've been right. (laughs) <laughs> oh, my God, that means you voted for Blair. How exciting. No, there were two exceptions. Have, I wouldn't have had George down as a Blairite. But I've always thought artists should be conservatives because the artist tends to be an entrepreneur, a radical thinker, questioning the status quo, which is what Margaret Thatcher did. And, you know, frankly, they, they're in, there's an element of uh, wanting to make some money. So why aren't more artists conservative? We don't know about that, but... Uh... But we, are, we always have been outsiders, no? because we never fitted in. So it was very big. It's fantastic to see the world from, the, from another side. And it is very right for us to be that. We never changed that. Even in the art world, we, only, we don't want to be part of the art world. We have never been part of grouping with artists. And we always wanted to be alone, individuals in front of what you call opening the door of our house and see the world as it is but as individuals. I've got a lot of questions to ask you, which aren't necessarily directly related to your exhibition. The first is obviously you were the first hipsters because you moved into Fournier Street. You know, every hipster with a flat white now wants to live 
in Fournier Street, but you were there 50 years ago. It, it was the only part of London where we could afford to live. It was, <laughs> it was £12 per floor. For the first half of the years we've been there, all of you journalist chaps said, now that you're a successful artist, don't you want to move to somewhere nice? In the second half, they say, oh, no, it's so trendy and so hip. Don't you want to move somewhere more? They always wanted to leave. <laughs> but, but we're there. For, for us, it, it means the world. And it means the world because it's a French street. It's built on a Roman cemetery. It is in Spitalfields, which is the home of returning crusaders who were damaged. We had a, up until 1900, there was a Russian vapor bath at the end of our street. On Brick Lane, Oscar Wilde came when he needed some opium. We have a mosque at one end of the street. We had the synagogue at the other end of the street. It's, a, it's an extraordinary part of the real world, past, present and future. And all of our pictures, these pictures in this exhibition are part of the past, present and future. We never made a picture that didn't have those three elements. In 1970, we bought what we call 12 Fournier Street and we were the first ones to restore our house back to what it should be because they were all used for factories, not not only small, cheap factories, but we realized that they were so beautiful, such beautiful houses, and we managed to restore it day and night ourselves, and at the same time making pictures. It was an extraordinary event for us. And then we managed to open up our studio. Now we have two houses and three studios. We and not only that, now we are doing a foundation around the corner, two minutes from us, that is going to be what they call for, for eternity, we hope. The reason your work is based in the East End is because you think all of life is in the East End. But it, but it is a, a marvellous example of what is safe and free where we live. We believe that everyone should be safe and free. Europe is safe and free. North America is safe and free. Australasia is safe and free. Most of the other territories are not. They're either in the grip of dictators or of the church. So many people suffered and worked and strived to get us to this amazing privileged position. And we want to be grateful every day for that. And we want to add to that. More, more books, more pictures, more music, more poetry, more opera, more ballet, more movies. That's how the world invented itself as a safe and free place. We are in charge of our destiny. And artists always are the outsider who can see the world in some way, in a different way. And that's what we're doing. We're walking the, what you call, uh, the journey through life and pro and projecting the feelings that we have inside ourselves on the walls of the galleries. It's our journey, our thought, our, our goodness, our badness, our sins, and everything is on the walls. Now, I don't want to get sound too narrow-minded, but I'm also, <laughs> I love your suits and your ties. You know, we always believed from a, when we were baby artists that it was very important not to alienate sections of society. So we didn't want to be normal because all those people out there are normal, we don't want to be like that. And we don't want to be weird because all of the artists are weird. So we want to be weird and normal at the same time. And also being from a lower class background, we, we know that on an important occasion, you dress up and put on a suit. If you go for a job or a wedding or a funeral or a christening or, or to apply for a post, you put on a suit. And we do believe and always believe that every day is incredibly important to every single person. We, and in early days, in 1969, we did a small booklet and we put in the word to put on the responsibility suits of our art every day. 
the responsibility suit is important for us. It's quite interesting because we had a show in Monte Carlo and we stayed in a very posh hotel and they all thought we were the waiters. <laughs> but who, uh, who makes your suits and ties? As baby artists, we had a string of different old Jewish tailors on Brick Lane. They were marvellous. Mr. Levenberg. They, they all died or retired. And now back to politics, I want to ask you, views on Boris. We're great supporters of Boris. We think he needs all the support and love that we can all give him. It's a very difficult time. He has a tremendous job to do. We knew him before he was Boris, in fact. We used to go every night to a very good Korean restaurant in the Holloway Road. And in the middle of our meal every evening, a young, glamorous person with blonde hair came into the restaurant with his bicycle and put the bicycle on the floor and paid and collected his takeaway. And a year later, we suddenly realised the new mayor of London was this person. <laughs> and on the rare occasions when he passes us on the street on his cycle in the evening, he always calls out, Gilbert, George. <laughs> That's more than enough for us. So, so we are fans. We are fans. Now, the other big question exercising the nation, Meghan Markle. Oh, ah, no. Let's keep that very simple. We're good, decent, lower-class people. And I was brought up not to gossip about the royal family, not, not to talk about sex or money or religion at dinner, and we keep to that. It's, it's fine to say nice things about the royal family, but not to gossip. It's a, it's a very, very bad form. Excellent answer. Okay, I'm dying to ask one other question. The Royal Academy. Oh, that's very simple. For years, the Royal Academy courted us in the days of, of Norman Rosenthal and the artists. They always wanted to modernise the Royal Academy. And we said, we, not one of our art school teachers from Dartington, from Oxford or St Martin, ever went near the Royal Academy. It's an awful, old-fashioned place. And they said, no, no, but we want to be modern. And we can only be modern if the artists help. We need people like you to bring us up to date. And we said, we really don't want to do it. Oh, please, you must do it. The years rolled by. And then in the, in the end, they, they said that you can do an exhibition and all these things. And we finally agreed to join, to become a member. And then they arranged a date for a show. It was all very exciting. And then they said, oh, there's just one little technique. We, we just have to go through the committee. You know, it's just a formality. It's just to get it rubber stamped. And then the committee said, no, they didn't want to ever show oh. our art. They said, you, so, so, yeah, they made a unanimous decision against us. On what grounds? No, they didn't mention why. Against our art, I'm sure, yeah. It's, it's something they've done. They think they've done it to us, but in fact, they've done it to themselves. Picasso never showed at the Royal Academy during his lifetime. Henry Moore never showed at the Royal Academy during his lifetime. Francis Bacon didn't show at the Royal Academy during his lifetime. The, the list is endless. But it would have been a fantastic exhibition. For them. We know that. For the, for Unbelievable. Them. And not only that, quite cheap exhibition because they are running out of money every single day. We have a, we have a secret plan for a much better yes. show. Oh. Do you want oh. to tell us what it is? No. It's a secret. <laughs> so it's called Gilbert and George Modern, Modern Pictures XRAs. <laughs> <laughs> That'll teach them. <laughs> Who are the artists that you most admire, living or dead? It's very difficult to say that because people think, oh, yes, whatever you say, they think, oh, that's where it all comes from. I, I would say that as a baby teenager, I bought a second-hand copy of the first edition of the letters of Van Gogh, and I read the whole book, and I was absolutely amazed and totally intrigued. And I realised one thing from reading the book, and that was that he did it all wrong, but he won. And that impressed me. And that, that has stuck with me 
ever since. For me, it was quite difficult because I wanted to be a sculptor when I was very young, six, seven, eight, and I was looking towards Italy and Michelangelo, that's a man who did it all. So I wanted to be roughly something like that. When you were emerging as artists, you would have been with Bacon and Freud and Hockney. The first artists who approached us out of the blue as when we were totally unknown baby artists was David Hockney, who we hadn't met, and he invited us to lunch. He came to Fournay Street in his car and played opera all the way to Bertarelli's restaurant, it was called, where we'd never been because we couldn't afford it. It was very friendly. And then the next artist who was friendly was Richard Hamilton. And he telephoned oh, yeah. us and t- took us to Chinatown, to the best restaurant. Again, where we'd never been because we couldn't have afforded it. it he just... took us with a Porsche and a Labour sticker. Oh, yes. A beautiful silver, <laughs> beautiful silver car. No, we, we, we believe in artists who give of themselves, that's the idea. No, no artist is going to be very good or useful lying on the beach with a gin and tonic. We moved away with the relationship with art. We didn't want to be contaminated by speaking about art in general. That's why from 69 onwards, we never really made contact with the different artists. We prefer to be alone outside doing whatever we want and not part of the art world. We have some baby artists that are that were socially involved and were very friendly. And we have a fantastic artist called Oliver, who lived very near us on the utopian housing estate called the Boundary Estate. And he was walking home one evening, 10 years ago, when he was stabbed all over by homophobic, gay-bashing Bangladeshi teenagers and is paralyzed for life. But he does the most marvelous art that you've ever seen. Where can we see that art? If anyway. He doesn't have an exhibition at the moment, but we're, we're hoping he will have. We are campaigning for us, for him very much. So maybe in our, when we have our space up. Oh, where's your, where's your space? Just, just around the corner from where we live, there's, yep. a, there's a street called Heneage Street, a little old quaint cobbled street. There was a synagogue there until the 60s. And there's a, a very beautiful free house pub there called the Pride of Spitalfields. And next door to that, there are some double doors and a strange, lost, forgotten garden and building. And five years ago, we bought that. And we're at, at the moment, we are restoring that building. And it will be the Gilbert and George Centre. We designed the gates for it. And that will be open to the public. And it's just, as Gilbert was saying earlier, it's just so that we can live forever. Right, <laughs> right. What a great day to end on. That's fantastic. And when will, when will we be able to visit that, do you think? Maybe a year, 18 months, yes. Oh, how exciting. Do you do a lot of podcasts? No. No. Is this your first podcast? We don't have a telephone, what do you call mobile phone. Are we your first podcast? Yeah, probably, yeah. Yes, of course. Well, this is a seminal moment. I think it's a work of art in and of itself. We've, we've, lost, <laughs> we've lo- lost our podcast virginity. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it wasn't too painful. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much. You'll be darlings. Thank (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was terrific. I could have talked to them all day, although I'm not sure I believe them when they say it was their first podcast. It would be a coup for us if it was. But I think Charlotte has found them talking on other podcasts. (laughs) It doesn't matter. We were very honoured and we loved having them. And the point is the pictures are sensational. Truly, this is an exhibition not to be missed. But the White Cube in Mason's Yard hopes to open on April the 13th. But that exhibition only runs until May the 1st. So make sure you get there as you only have a fortnight to do so. Now, the word polymath hardly begins to describe our next guest, 
Desmond Cecil, CMG. He studied chemistry and PP at Oxford. He's a multilinguist, and he's had a career that's included being a senior British diplomat and a nuclear environmental expert on Russia. Yet running through all these very career moves has been his love of music. In fact, at the start of his working life, Desmond spent five years as a professional violinist. He's now managed to squeeze his life into a book called The Wandering Civil Servant of Stradivarius, and the point of that title will become apparent during this podcast. Desmond is here to tell us all about it. Good morning, Desmond. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, Desmond. And your life has just been so extraordinary. I don't know where to start except to sort of jump into the middle of it. So you've said that your incredibly varied career has largely been the result of internal emotional drives. And I think what I'm really interested in hearing about is the impact you think your ability to form music has had on your diplomacy skills, because you switched quite suddenly from being a violinist to a diplomat. So, so start by telling our listeners about that. Well, I worked for five years as a professional violinist in Switzerland, and my aim was to become a great solo violinist. But after five years, it became clear to me I wasn't going to do Yehudi Minim out of a job. And I didn't fancy playing in orchestras and teaching for the rest of my life. So I looked around for something else and thought that I would keep up my violin as, as my love, and I could I play it every day to this day with professionals, but decided to leave the professional, the profession, and I looked around at sensible things like banks and newspapers, and they weren't interested in somebody who'd been a violinist for five years. And I went back to Oxford, and the university said, well, try the Foreign Office. And to my amazement, they offered me a job. But I think, as you said, Charlotte, for me, music, my violin enabled me. I had embassy postings to Germany, Bonn, to the UN in Switzerland, to um, Vienna and all around the world. But it enabled me to build up very special bonds with local musicians and a lot of local politicians because I played with the locals and uh, that provided a completely fresh dimension as well as keeping me sane from some of the bureaucratic nonsenses that we all had to put up with. <laughs> I've got this wonderful image of you solving a lot of tricky sort of standoffs by getting your violin out. And I, and I think this might have come into play when you were dealing later in your life with, with, with Russians. Well, that, that was a fascinating time because I was originally due to go to Moscow in 1971. And at that time, the, the British government decided to kick out 105 Soviet spies and we had a block on British diplomats going to Russia. That Fortunately, I was never blacklisted, but they knew I was a Russian speaker. And over the years, I always had very cordial relationships with Soviet diplomats. But when I left the Foreign Office, I looked around for something to do, and partly because of the Russian language, nuclear power came up, and the cleanup in Russia. And, and that was a quite extraordinary time that Russia opened right up. It was post-Soviet and pre-Putin, and we had a really extraordinary friendship from, from former Soviet nuclear and political governors, admirals, officials, as we were tackling with them a common European environmental threat. Did you find that you met some amazing musicians, or indeed some amazing musical politicians? Well, I, I played with musical politicians. There was a senior German diplomat at, when I was in Bonn. We played chain, chain music together. And um, that happened all, all over. And, and it, that provided, as I said, a very special bond. And the reason you've got Stradivarius in your title is because you actually own a Stradivarius, which is an unusual asset for a diplomat to have. Well, I didn't have it when I was a diplomat. I mean, I had a, a perfectly decent old Italian violin 
But about 15 years ago, I decided before I became old and senile, I'd look around for a top, <laughs> of, range, a top of the range violin. And I know the violin trade quite well. So I looked all over Europe and came across this violin made in 1724 when the old boy was 80 but he still had 13 years of his, his working life to go so so hang about everyone and it was relatively cheap because it hadn't been played for 170 years the sound was completely dead and I took a gamble that the sound would come back to life which it did with the playing and the violin experts of the world all agreed it was a genuine 1724 Stradivarius. There were other great violin makers in northern Italy at the same time, Cremona, Milan, uh, Venice, etc. But, but he, he stood out, and even in his day, he was known as a great maker. There was a, a saying in Italian at the time, Marico come Stradivari, as rich as Stradivarius, because he sold his violins at a big profit then. So tell me... Another thing, you're a scientist and a musician, and one of the great debates in life, if you like, and certainly one that I participated in as arts minister, is the link between the arts and science. Do you think being a great musician as you are makes you a better scientist or indeed vice versa? Well, I think science helps because the whole study of music, the mathematical aspects of music, the scientific approach does help without a doubt. And I think it also helps with languages because one can see languages in little boxes with um, structures inside them. How many do you speak, Desmond? Well, if you count English, seven. <laughs> well, I'm slightly cheating in that I count German, High German and Swiss German dialect as two separate languages, which they are, because they're as separate from each other as English and Dutch. At the age of 50, I had to learn Spanish Spanish. They made me undersecretary for the Americas. So I went on a three-week language course in Quito to learn the, the Latino version of Spanish. Oh, lovely Quito in uh, Ecuador. Lovely, at, 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 yeah. at um, over 2,000 metres. And you still play every day, Desmond? I still play every day, and particularly during lockdown. I play Bach wrote six um, solo violin sonatas, and I play one of them every day and take a break on Sundays. It helps keep me... Um, out of mischief. You're a total star, Desmond. Thank you so much for coming on our podcast. And your book is now available on Amazon. And one of the reasons that we're publicising it is because, very sadly, your publisher from Quartet Books, Naima Tala, sadly died. And therefore, the publishing house is slightly in flux in terms of supporting your publicity. So we're very happy to give you a plug. Thank you very much. It's very much appreciated. That's all we've got time for this week, but you know where to find us, countryandtownhouse.co.uk. We'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest, with Carol Annette, which is a must for anyone interested in interior design. Yes, and you'll also find our Great British Brands podcast in collaboration with Changemakers, in which this week's business leader, Michael Heyman, talks to the wonderful Marie Guerlain of Ondine, whose beautiful pans help ensure our kitchens are toxin-free. And as I'm sure you all know by now, add slash newsletter to our web address and you'll be able to sign up for our Country and Townhouse weekly newsletter and our monthly Great British Brands one. Well, I never knew you could get toxin-free pans. That is you very can. exciting. So look, next week we're going to be talking to Charles Samarais Smith, a titan in the art world. He's run the National Portrait Gallery, the National Gallery and the Royal Academy. And he's just written a book about the future of art museums and what they'll be for 
once the pandemic is over. So that's going to be a fascinating conversation. I really hope you can join us. But bye for now. Bye.